Thank you, Father, for the heart mending that you do, for the problem and trouble solving that you do. Thank you for solving our greatest problem, and that was our sin that separated us from you, and for the Lord Jesus Christ, who so willingly went to the cross, suffering the scorn and the shame thereof. Our hearts are humbled this morning, Lord, in the reality of it all. Thank you for the encouragement of your word and the instruction there to teach us how to live, to how to process the circumstances of our lives, to walk in the truth, to live as light and salt in a dirty old world. Thank you, Father, for the strengthening power of your word. And today, we just give ourselves to it now, this hour. I pray for your Holy Spirit to teach us to encourage us, and to build us up. It's in Jesus' name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. It's not very often that on Saturday afternoon that I will decide to change my message for the next day. I... um, usually plan somewhat ahead. I'm not prepared somewhat ahead, but I'm planning somewhat ahead of what's coming next. And as I was continuing to work on the message topic for today, back in Genesis, for those of you that are newer to us, you know that we've been in the great book of Genesis, getting going on a sermon series there. And as I continue to process some things that are happening in our own lives and then the calendar and how it's falling into place, I decided to put off uh, the message that's in your bulletin for today that is really the first of several messages that kind of fit together dealing with some social and cultural issues of our day that are really important. Um, Whether you've really thought them through or not, um, things like um, gender roles in our culture, Um, Things like um, homosexuality, for example. We saw the San Francisco court decision this, or California State Supreme Court decision this week. And a number of things that all point us back to what is God's design in Genesis? And how did God intend for it to be? We have a group of people working very hard on a gender-neutral Bible. Um, There's even a group that has printed a Bible where instead of referring to God as he, they're referring to to, to her as she and uh, to him as she, and uh, they think they're doing a great work. And uh, is that okay? And there's all kinds of questions, and there's about three, maybe even four messages out of Genesis chapter 1, then 2 and 3, that all fit this kind of line of thought. And the way my personal calendar is working out, that if all goes as planned, today will be the last time I will preach um, and until the end of of June, the second to the last week in June, I'll have the next four Sundays where I will not be preaching. And so I decided, uh, based on fitting the messages together, and then just some things that have been processing in my own life and mind, that I decided to change the topic for today. I remember when I was in Bible college, um, it's Dudley Morgan, Mike, um, a beloved pastor friend of mine that we loved dearly when we were in Bible college down in Beckley, he used to stand up and at the beginning of the service, he would say, now you pray for me, i got two or three different messages going on in my mind, and I don't know what God's going to do here. I'm not that way. When I, we get the message that's on my notes, that's in my Bible, I try to be uh, vulnerable to the Holy Spirit, but uh, 
Um, yesterday afternoon, I shifted gears dramatically, and I just decided to share some things that are going on in our lives and some of the lessons that might be an encouragement to you. Unless things would change with some uh, appointments that still are on the calendar, one week from this Wednesday, May 28th, at 6 o'clock in the morning, uh, Janet and I will be making our way, along with Chris and Deanna Martin from our church, to the 8th floor, at 6 o'clock in the morning, to the 8th floor of the University of Maryland Medical Center in downtown Baltimore. That's going to be one of those grueling nights. You know how they don't check you in the night before now, and there's some procedures that have to go on in preparation for surgery on Tuesday evening, the 27th. So there's Monday Memorial Day, then Tuesday, then Wednesday morning, that Wednesday morning, 8th floor there, 6 a.m., and about 8 o'clock a.m., Lord willing, if all goes as planned, they will wheel Janet and Deanna off to, to uh, they'll start out in the same room, but then they will wheel them into separate operating rooms, both nearby. And my wife Janet will receive that day one of Deanna Martin's kidneys in a kidney transplant. Janet looks healthy, but she has some major problems that have been going on. I've known this since I dated her. Uh, when she was 18 years old, she found out that she had a hereditary kidney disease. It comes from her mother's side of the family, and we've shared this with different people in the church and at prayer meeting and ladies' Bible studies, but I've not mentioned it from the pulpit. Um, did not want to draw undue attention to ourselves, but at this point, um, two things. Number one, we need your prayer, and this is a major, major surgery for Janet and Deanna. And then secondly, I think that it relates to a number of things that have been going on in the lives of people throughout our congregation on an ongoing basis where we're going to end up. But Janet has what's called polycystic kidney disease. If you want to know more about it, just Google PKD. PKD, that's all you have to put in there. And uh, it's something that in the last 20 years they've learned a lot about. Her grandmother died of it in 1972 or so, and they didn't even know what it was. They just knew, knew that her kidneys stopped working. And what it is, the name tells it all, poly, that means many, cystic, cysts, Poly means many, cysts means cysts, kidney, that means kidney, disease, that means disease. So many cysts in the kidney disease, all right? And it's an example, really, of how evolution doesn't work on the lines of mutation. It's a, it's a mutation and, and that has brought that about, and it's not an improvement. As a result, her kidneys, through the years, have continued to grow in size. doesn't look like it. She disguises it well, but her kidneys are about at least the size of a football, um, both of them, and they fill her up inside. There's no room for anything there now. And kidney function has diminished, and she's at about 9 or 10% kidney function. So far, her nephrologist has allowed her not to go on dialysis for the reason of the fact that we're so near transplant. And because we're so blessed to be part of a church family where... Um, multiple people have come forward and said, Janet, I have O blood, and I'm willing to give you a kidney. And Deanna Martin has proven to be an excellent match. And so this morning, I want to ask you to put Janet and Deanna down on your prayer list. And now for the next 10 days or so, would you really pray for them? Pray for Deanna to have a speedy recovery. That lady has so much going on in her world. And when she found out about it, she, of course, had another problem that she could solve. And that brought, brought great joy to her life. That's the kind of person she is, if you know her well. Um, 
she's, if you're not newer to us, she's the lady who's in charge of our nurseries and uh, just keeps the wheels and the plates spinning over there. Transplant patients get VIP treatment, so if you're wanting to go out to an expensive hotel and get great treatment, donate a kidney to somebody because uh, the University of Maryland will put you up in the VIP quarters. All your expenses are paid. You get served your meals with stemware, and you get uh, uh, frillies on your sheets and a real bed and just private quarters, and I mean it's the royal treatment for the transplant, uh, for the uh, uh, donor. And uh, Janet won't be there. But what they'll do is um, they will admit them both at the same time. And then they will begin a three to four hour surgery on Janet. And it will be to, uh, it's a nephrectomy. It will be to remove those old bad kidneys that are no longer of use. And that'll take three to four hours. And once they get going, and that's a major surgery, once they get going... Uh, they will give the thumbs up, if everything looks good, to the team that's waiting with Diana, and they will go in and prepare her and try to work the timing so that when the team that's working with Janet is ready to remove the old kidneys, the other team has the new kidney ready to go, and then they switch teams, or they will remove, the second team takes over, and they will insert the new kidney in Janet and minimize the amount of time that Diana's donated kin- kidney will be without blood. And the doctors tell us that, and, and this is another marvelous example of the creative power of God and how marvelously designed we are. But even as that kidney is attached on the operating table before Janet is even closed up, her creatinine levels will begin to drop. And they said that uh, the systems will kick in and that kidney will begin to do its work just as soon as it's hooked up. It's amazing, isn't it? And they say that she'll feel quite good. And uh, the surgery is major, and it's a major opening, and so she'll have some recovery. Deanna's surgery, Lord willing, will go as a laparoscopic surgery, and so she'll be in Wednesday morning, and Lord willing, we'll get home Friday, and we understand that by the first of the next week, she'll be feeling pretty good. Will you pray for that? Will you pray that the Lord will really just bless Deanna? Um, the Lord told us that it's more blessed to give than to receive. But sometimes we have to be in a position where we have to receive, right? And we can't give. And Deanna's able to give as of now. We could announce there's a couple, you know, uh, right up to the last minute, they're still comparing blood samples and making sure they're staying on track. And our bodies are amazing things, the chemical structure and so forth. And, uh, but Lord willing, as of right now, everything's a green light go for one week from Wednesday. Pray for Chris and the children. That's a big family, a lot going on. And here's Deanna giving herself away again. And uh, we're in a position to, to receive it, and we're blessed by that. And I want to just encourage you to pray for Deanna, to be blessed by the Lord in a special way, and the whole family for this great gift that, that she's giving. Janet Sergio is... a of course, a little more surgery. One of the uh, serious. One of the reasons we're at the University of Maryland in Baltimore is that they are one of the leading institutes on this procedure. We've just been so blessed with the doctors that are there and very encouraged by them. And uh, they are taking out the old kidneys and inserting the new kidney all in the same day, same surgery, same room. And a lot of that's not protocol at all places. There, that's more and more becoming protocol. But University of Maryland has had great success with that, and we'd like to knock it all out in one day. Three to four hours then to put the new kidney in, so up to eight-hour surgery there for little Janie baby. So pray for her, would you please? And um, we'll be counting on you for that.
So what's been on my mind is, um, I say all that, then kind of a long introduction. Uh, I'm known for brief introductions, I know. But um, to say that, um, obviously, we've had a lot in our home, in our family, and a lot to think about. And you know when it's down to where life is speeding up right now in preparation. Some of you have been there where major surgery is ahead, and you've got to prepare for that. Uh, Dr. Anderson will be in the pulpit next week, and we'll be here and participating, Lord willing. And then June 1st, my brother-in-law, Howard Merrill, I invited him to come up and just preach in our new building. He's kind of been a mentor to me and a model and a role model for me from Covington Bible Church, a little Bible church where he's been faithful for about 35 years. I hope you'll enjoy his ministry. And then Pastor Billy will be preaching two weeks back-to-back, the 8th and the 15th. And uh, I thought it would be good for him to have that experience of preaching back-to-back weeks as he grows and develops. Continue to pray for them. I think I heard rain hitting the roof, did I, earlier? They're up at Sleepy Creek Lake with a bunch of teen boys, Pastor Billy and Rich Beto. And uh, what a great time I'm sure they've had, even if they get rained on here, as they try to reach the hearts of those young men for Christ and challenge them to live for Jesus without shame. They'll be coming back in this evening sometime. But I was thinking in all of this, about how, as Christians, we're not exempt from difficult experiences, particularly, I'm thinking, in the area of physical malady with our bodies. Have you noticed that? Listen, don't ever believe anybody who's preaching a health and wealth gospel. If someone tells you that if you just have enough faith and you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you're just going to be well and fit and good, listen... It's not about our happiness, and it's not about our health. We live in a sin-cursed world, and we'll address this issue in Genesis, the source of evil, the source of sickness, and why it happens and why it hits believers, the just and the unjust alike. But often we have very difficult times, and I think we find uh, from looking around and observing that God often uses pain in our physical body to teach us many lessons and to glorify himself. Do you know that? Don't ever let anybody tell you that um, accepting Jesus Christ will just make you happy all the time. I'm not so sure Jesus was happy on the cross when the sin of the world was upon him and his father turned his back upon him. It wasn't about making him happy. It was about accomplishing his purpose for his glory to the end of raising up a holy people. I noticed when I was a little boy, about age seven, coming around the corner of the hallway in our little parsonage in northern Illinois, it was the first that I can remember in my mind that my father could be weak. My dad earlier that day had broken both of his wrists in an accident, uh, helping a man uh, put in windows, big factory windows, as a part-time job at our little Bible church there where my dad was pastor in northern Illinois, south Chicago. And as I looked around the corner undecided about whether to enter in, my dad didn't see me there, and I watched him, and his wrists were bound up. He had shattered both of his wrists in a very serious accident. The left wrist never recovered, permanent nerve damage. And I stood there and listened to him moan and cry. And that just stirred my little heart because I'd never seen my daddy like that before. He was a pastor of a Bible church. He loved Jesus with all his heart. And yet God allowed both of his wrists to be broken. That was terrible timing. 
He didn't have a bunch of men around him like I do here to help with the ministry. A lot of that ministry came on his back. And he had a family. And here he was with his wrist broken, couldn't even feed himself, couldn't take care of his own personal hygiene. That's terrible timing, isn't it? And you've been there before, haven't you? You've seen it in yourself or in your own family. I've looked around our church and I've seen it. I'll never forget the phone call that came from Marie Laymaster, Junior's sister, Pastor Van, and Junior's had an accident. Heading up to the hospital late that night to find that his neck was broken. I'll never forget holding those big, thick, calloused hands. The first few months they stayed big before they shriveled up and thinking, we are so weak, aren't we? We think we're so strong, and Junior had such big, strong mitts. You remember that? And then they're weak, totally helpless, in physical, bodily brokenness. That's what I'm thinking about. We have stories in our own lives. We have stories in our church. We have stories in the Bible, and I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Kind of a classic passage. This one fits so well because... I believe it is particularly addressing the issue of a physical problem. Someone who is godly and Christ-centered, but is in the middle of a struggle with bodily function. The strength of their body is waning and there's nothing they can do about it. Why does that happen? What is God doing? And so I've entitled our message this morning, The Strength of weakness. Or if you want to, you can call it the weakness of strength. Because what happens, isn't it, in our own physical strength, and I'm sure those titles didn't enter my mind in an original thought. I've, people have addressed this issue before, although I have nothing in particular in mind, and these are my thoughts I've put together here. That in our own physical body, and, and in the strength of youth, or even in the strength of, of, a, of a blessed life, We can think that we really have a lot to offer the Lord, don't we? And we can really get self-dependent and we can get strong. And we find in the scriptures in many cases where that kind of strength is ultimately a weakness when it comes to the Lord accomplishing His purposes. And doesn't He delight in taking weak and broken things in His backwards plan? Isn't it backwards to us? To turn the other cheek, He said, Jesus taught? Well, that's backwards from the world's way, isn't it? And don't we live in a world that always tries to take God's way and take the truth and turn it backwards? We even reflect it in our vocabulary, the vocabulary or vernacular of youth and slang. And uh, and about 20, 25 years ago, maybe even more now already, the word bad became to mean good. And the world turned it backwards, didn't they? A, more, a little bit more recent, I think it's probably the last 10 years or so, I don't, I'm not up on the culture like I used to be as much, the word sick came to mean good. That's really sick. That, that meant, that's really a good motorcycle, or that's really a great shirt, or that slam jam with the basketball, that's really, you're sick. That means you're really good. It's all backwards. And when we come to our Bibles and we understand Christ's teaching to us, we find that He does a lot of backward things. Turn the other cheek. If someone takes you to court and sues you for your jacket, give them your shirt. Hey, that's backwards. I don't operate like that. And so we see it even in the realm of physical bodily malady. 
when our bodies just don't work the way we want them to. And what a blessing good health is. Do you appreciate your good health? But I hope that in the middle of difficulty and adversity with your body, you'll not miss the opportunity for God to use your brokenness and your weaknesses to bring glory to Himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you'll understand that in the context, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a church that he helped lead and that he cares about very deeply. One of the problems in the church is that, well, one of the many problems in this church is, is that they have gotten to a place where they are disrespecting his authority. They've disrespected his leadership. He's not present with him, therefore he's writing them a letter, and hence we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and we also know from inference of Scripture that he wrote them at least two other times, but they were not included under the guidance of the Holy Spirit uh, as inspired text of Scripture, just this, what we call 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, so we know this is at least the second letter. There was probably at least one letter in between these letters. And what he's writing to them about is to say, look, God has used me, I am for real, and at the end of this letter, he's standing up against, evidently, some spiritual leaders or some influential people in the church at Corinth who have disrupted the ministry and who are pointing at the Apostle Paul and saying, don't listen to him, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And so the Apostle Paul finds himself in the uncomfortable position of a leader when he has to defend his right to lead and his right to apostleship. And that's why in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he has gone through that great list that you're familiar with of all the times he got beaten and stoned with rocks and shipwrecked in the sea and all the burden and going through his record of ministry. And look, I am committed to the church. I am for real. God has used me. This is my ministry. And then in chapter 12, he continues going and he kind of changes tone. And in his defense of his ministry... He's a little bit embarrassed almost to say some things that he feels he needs to say to credential himself. And he actually switches, as you'll see in the text, to speaking in the second person about himself. Rather than saying, I, the personal pronoun, over and over. He said, I know a man. And he starts talking about this man in referring to himself. And in so doing, he opens up his heart and he lets us in on a little bit of a private side of his life on something that was going on in his personal world. I believe he's addressing a physical, bodily malady. Not all Bible commentators believe that, and you can see in the, in the language, it's not 100% clear what exactly he's dealing with. Some people think that this angelos is the Greek word, messenger from Satan, who is spearing him or stabbing him, is kind of the idea of the Greek word, is that it's a reference to the leader at the church who just won't give up on trying to undermine his ministry and that that's the malady he's talking about. Other Bible commentators, and I take the position, just because I choose to, and I think it makes sense, you can't prove it exegetically, it appears to me that he really is probably talking, I would think, about an actual physical problem. Nobody knows what it is, but even the great Apostle Paul is struggling under the weakness of his body somehow not functioning the way he thinks it's supposed to function. So let's read our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And to put it in context, I'll just begin with verse 1. You follow along and we'll read through verse 10. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained... I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Verse 2. 
I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. It's interesting, isn't it? In defense of himself, and he's, he had this great experience because think about how, the, how God used the great Apostle Paul, the great missionary, church planter, the writer of the New Testament, the authority of the early church following the ministry of Christ. And so when he was converted after his conversion, and probably sometime when he was in the Arabian desert, he was caught up, it says, to the third heaven, to paradise, the NIV says, and evidently had an face-to-face encounter, and evidently the Lord Jesus opened up the gates of heaven, so to speak, and let him see things that no other living person was allowed to see, and he showed it to him, evidently to give him a courage, to give him an authority, to give him an insight and a knowledge so that he could write the theology and establish the churches and have the hope of heaven. And But he was told, don't even speak about these things, they're unspeakable. They're in dimensions that nobody's going to understand anyway. And so the Apostle Paul had this great... He didn't even know for sure himself if it was a bodily transformation where he was literally taken up in bodily form or if it happened when he was in a sleep and it was a spiritual vision. He He couldn't even tell, but he said, God knows. He said it twice. But then he goes on to say, I'm not going to boast in any of that. I'll only boast, and notice the next word he says, in my weaknesses. Isn't that backwards? To keep me from becoming conceited, verse 7, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn. The word is kind of a dagger in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, say it with me, then I am strong. That's all backwards, isn't it? Do you believe this stuff? You Bible people, you amaze me. That doesn't even make sense, does it? Well, it does. Indeed, it makes sense, and it's the truth, and we learn a great lesson from the Apostle Paul. I want to, I want to learn some lessons, and I've just titled it this way, In Weakness and in Brokenness I Learn, and then there's four things. Really five, I'm going to add. You might want to jot these down. It may be helpful for you to reflect upon them in the future. In weakness and in brokenness, and I'm thinking particularly today of physical brokenness. It's so widespread. Bruce Plitt is at home recovering. What a long recovery. It was good to see Hubert Good in church this morning. He's had such a strong, uh, such a long recovery from open art. Wayne McKenzie was in church this morning. I remember that steel halo put on him when he had his spine fused and how miserable it was, screwed right into his skull. It's going to happen again next winter for him. And on and on it goes. It's all over the place. Alan Blalack recovering from gallbladder surgery. What's going on with these bodies of ours? And how do we process 
bodily, physical weakness. Number one, in my weakness and brokenness, I learned, number one, the lessons of humility. The lessons of humility. You know, I think if you'll stop and think about it, and this is a huge area in our lives, this power of the flesh and this reliance upon our own intellect and our own ability to to boast in our own accomplishments and in our own strength. There is nothing like physical weakness to make us realize how puny we really are. Have you been there? Oh, we think we're so big and strong and tough. And then all of a sudden you're 40, almost 48 years old and a 13-year-old kid can lift more than you can. It's like, what's wrong with this picture? And we get sick so easy. Some little beastie enters the system and we can't get three feet away from the bathroom. What a big, tough guy you are. What do you mean you can't eat food for three days? My stomach won't settle. You're not tough enough to just eat a piece of white bread untoasted? No. I'm that puny. One of the lessons I'm confident that God does when he breaks us down physically is he reminds us of how weak And puny we are and how important it is to be dependent upon him every day for our breath and for our sustenance, for our strength. We won't take the time. I have a number of verses listed from Proverbs and James to talk about this quality of humility and how God fights against our pride on an ongoing basis. For example, though, in Proverbs... Chapter 18, verse 10, don't turn there. The idea is, I believe that's the one, it says that that the wealthy man considers his wealth a strong tower. Another man, he considers his physical strength his refuge. But it's the humble that God lifts up and protects. James clearly talks about us delighting in our weaknesses. And that it's the humble person that God exalts. It's the proud that he brings down. I am totally convinced that one of the reasons God does not keep disease, illness, sickness, and bodily weakness away from his children on earth, there's multiple reasons, and there's a theology of sickness that we will look at in Genesis. It goes back to Genesis. But I'm convinced that it is this, that it is in the time of physical weakness that we learn the most about the lessons of humility. Boy, those are good lessons, aren't they? And they drive us to dependence upon our Lord. Secondly, we see from the Apostle Paul, he said, verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited. Did you see that there? The lessons of humility. Because of these great revelations, he's a man who could have depended on his own strength easily. There was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan. I think, secondly, we have to realize in the midst of physical malady and physical difficulty that there are many different reasons for adversity. And I think it's good for us to be thinking about these things on occasion. The classic account of this, of course, is in the book of Job. And notice what Paul references here. In 2 Corinthians 12, he says, there was a, this, physical, this physical brokenness is a direct attack from Satan. We're in a spiritual war. Satan is trying to tear us down. And Job is the classic one. Remember, God is sitting on his throne. Remember that story? And Satan comes into his presence somehow. And God says, well, hey, you know, I don't think he said, how are you today? He already knew that. But he said, 
What have you been up to? He already knew that too, but he wanted to get an answer out of Satan. And Satan says, I've been going to and fro around the earth. There's no reason to think this still doesn't happen and his forces of darkness. And that then brings on a conversation, a dialogue between God and Satan that goes on for Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. And God actually points out his servant Job and says, Well, hey, Satan, since you've been going to and fro around the earth, did you check out my servant Job? And Satan goes, Oh, I know all about him. The only reason he serves you is because he's got such a good life. He's such a good guy, and of course he's going to love you. You give him to me for a few hours, and I'll take care of that. And God says, go ahead. Go ahead. And ultimately, it led to physical brokenness and illness. To the point he was so miserable, he sat at the doorpost of his home and scratched his body with a piece of broken pottery and then let the dogs lick the juice that came to the surface to try to get some relief. But in the end, though he was tried by fire, in Job's own words, he came forth as gold. Now you say, well that doesn't bring me any encouragement. That my loving Heavenly Father would point me out and say, did you check out my servant down there? Of course he's going to serve you. He's so blessed. Look at why wouldn't you serve Jesus? Attack him in the body somehow and see what happens. Knock him in the knees. Take him out of his game and see what's going to happen. I find that highly motivating that when my King Jesus points me out and wants to use me an example before the evil one, I want to go to the top, don't you? I want to come forth as gold. And that takes me back to my cross-country days when my coach would believe in me when nobody else did. I'd die for that coach. Consider my servant. And when we're in the midst of physical trouble and brokenness, don't think for a minute that there's not spiritual warfare going on. It's entirely possible, and it's even highly probable. Thirdly, and I didn't know exactly even how to phrase this one, but I think we see in the Apostle Paul here now, where he says in verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, and then in my Bible, I have a red letter edition Bible, he now quotes Jesus. But he said to me, quote, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Isn't that interesting? Thirdly, we see the beauty, I didn't know whether to say the beauty or the wisdom of God's sovereignty. I find a beauty in it and I find a wisdom in his planning. The beauty of God's sovereignty do you notice the parallel here when Paul, when Paul pleaded three times to get rid of this and, it, and the answer was no? It kind of reminds you of Jesus in Gethsemane, doesn't it? Where he pleaded. Remember his disciples fell asleep on him and three times he said, Lord, if it would be your will, let this cup pass from me. In his humanity, I'm sure part of that meant he was dreading the sheer physical brokenness that was about to come upon his body. Spiritually, he understood the horrendous nature of becoming sin for us. Can you imagine he who did no sin becoming sin for us? His heavenly Father not being able to look at him as he bore the burden and paid the penalty once and for all. Praise God. And his heavenly Father looks at him and says, Nope. The answer is no. 
I am sovereign over it all. You see, God is sovereign over the affairs of our lives and He's at work in ways that we don't even understand. Do you trust Him? It's not a mistake if you haven't brought it on yourself. It's no mistake when Janet was formed in the womb that there was a mutation in certain genetic structures. We're just blessed to live at a time where it can be addressed with internal imaging machines and so forth. They can see what's going on. They have answers. And what a blessing to be a part of a body of Christ where more than one person has come to her and said, I have old blood. You can have my kidney. What is that worth? It's unbelievable. But God in His sovereignty is unfolding His plan in our lives. And this is a time when we really learn lessons about trusting Him in His sovereignty. Because we don't even know all the lessons God has. We don't even know what God is doing. But we're going to watch Him. I was thinking about flying with my Uncle Bud in Alaska. He's kind of one of the last of the Mohicans. You've heard me reference him if you've been around here very long. I worked for him when I was in college. He was a bush pilot in Alaska. And I can remember the first summer I was up there, on the last day, he was flying me in to get the jet in St. Mary's, Alaska. I'll be mind, it was about an hour flight, and it was an overcast day, and I think 150 feet above the river. We followed the, the Yukon River into St. Mary's, and I think ceiling was like 150 feet. You shouldn't have been flying. Pouring down rain, windy, but he, I had a jet flight out of St. Mary's, and he wanted to get me home. I had to go to college. And I can remember holding on, I had my seatbelt on in Cessna 206, holding on to the ceiling with both hands. And I mean, and I'm not talking about turbulence that just bounced. I'm talking about the entire plane going completely sideways. Bam, bam, bam. And I remember him coming in with such a yaw into that airport, literally coming in with his nose facing crosswind. The, the winds were so strong. He was a great pilot. Coming in sideways like a skid and at the last minute turning her and landing her in there. I was scared. <laughs> but I wasn't that scared. You know why? I was with Uncle Bud. Man, those wings were flapping. And one time on a, we were coming in on approach and he was skidding it in there. And the winds were at least probably 30, 40 knot winds. I'm serious. And we're flying in the middle of this junk. And the window popped wide open. You know how loud that is? You come out of your skin. I looked at Uncle Bud. Didn't bother him. He's drinking coffee, flying an airplane. <laughs> Another day's work. Now, he's not sovereign, but he's really, really good. And so I just watch him because he knows what's going to happen and he's the man. And I don't have to worry about it. This is Jesus and his disciples in the boat, isn't it? When the storm, when the, their boat is rocking and they think they're going to die and, and the account in Luke says Jesus was asleep on a cushion. Gives us a little detail. Very comfortable. He wakes up and these grown men are frightful. We've talked about this passage many times. They think they're going to die and he just stands up and says, Peace, be still. Calms it all down. Listen, when Jesus is in your boat, let her rock, man. He's sovereign over it. And he's going to do things that we don't know what the future's going to hold. I can only take this so far. All I know is that my job is to just watch him. He's the sovereign pilot, he's my king. I'm going to see what he's going to do in the middle of this. I don't have to solve this problem. And ultimately, I've got a brand new body waiting for me. 
and a brand new mansion waiting for me. Listen, this is a time to believe what you really believe and keep your eyes on the pilot. The Apostle Paul said, to keep me from becoming conceited. These were the lessons of humility. He said it was a messenger from Satan. These are the reasons for adversity that we learn about. But he says, he said to me, my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's the beauty of God's sovereignty. I can trust him. Ultimately, verses 9 and 10 are the secret to stability. The secret to stability. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. He says, I will boast about my weaknesses. Why? Because when I'm weak, He's strong. So Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There it is. Weakness that is strength. Isn't that amazing? In my weakness physically, I am primed for an opportunity to wait and see. We can't predict the future. We don't know what God's going to do. But we're excited to see what God is going to do to bring glory to Himself through my weaknesses. Is that a great way to live? Who wants to have their spine operated on and have a halo screwed into their head next winter? Raise your hand. Who wants to have their gallbladder whacked out? And on it goes. Who wants to keep fighting congestive heart failure and trying to get rid of that fluid over and over and over? What a miserable problem. You want to go. You want to be strong. You want to get your work done. You want to do what you were put here to do. No, you know what? You are poised in your brokenness and in your weakness to see God do something that He would not normally do except for the fact that you are now in your weakness ready to be used to show forth His strength. Wow. So then you have to say, what a privilege. Bring it on. (laughs) No, we're not designed that way, are we? We don't go home looking to twist our ankles so that we can be weak. Oh, Lord, I I just love the humility you bring in my life. I think I'm going to go get hit by a car today and become broken. No, not at all. But when He allows these things into our lives, don't waste the pain, right? I wanted to throw in a fifth one that's not in the text, but I wanted to say it because it's so real to us, the Marceau family at this time, and that is the value of community. In our physical brokenness and weakness, I learn, number five, the value of community. Can I tell you that I'm so thankful to be a part of a church like this? It's not a perfect church. All kinds of problems, issues, things we could do better. Not a perfect pastor. Janet looks at the computer a lot and reads blogs of people who are having transplants. And by the way, I would say too that God has answered prayer. Many have been praying and though she was fighting with a spirit of fear some weeks ago, the Lord seems to have brought a real calm to her life. Now she's kind of afraid that something's going to happen to bump it off schedule. We're ready to get it over with and get going. But she reads blogs almost every evening on the computer of people who are having a transplant. It's amazing what's on the internet. 
And uh, she'll say to me, you know, I thought maybe he got a kidney because I didn't read his, he didn't post his blog for like three or four days. And then he comes back on and it's some guy in Northern California. I got my kidney. And then he goes in detail telling all about it. And almost always they say how great they feel. I didn't know I felt as bad as I did. And you know what's interesting about that? A lot of those guys, they've waited upwards of two, even three years waiting for a donor. Waiting even for a cadaver kidney, which isn't as good as a kidney as a live donor. When we found out that I was not going to be a match, because I have A-positive blood and she had to have O-blood, do you know that it was really just a matter of a couple days and there were five people, including only one relative, all the rest connected to this ministry, who said, Janet, you can have one of my kidneys. What is that all about? What is that worth? I would like to think it's not just because she's the pastor's wife, but because this is a loving body of believers in this community who take good care of each other. What a testimony to a watching world I trust it will be. So what is God doing in your life? I don't know. Keep your eyes on Him, though. He's trustworthy. These are the lessons of humility, some reasons for adversity, the beauty of his sovereignty, the secret to stability is that when I'm weak, he is strong. And thank you for the loving community that you are. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I thank you this morning for the testimony of the great Apostle Paul who admitted his weaknesses to us. And Lord, I just pray that we, like him, would be able to boast in our weaknesses Not because it's fun to go through, but because it's a joy to be used by you to to demonstrate the power of Christ. And what a privilege. Would you please give us a growing understanding of what that means and how we must think and how we must believe in the middle of adversity with our bodies. Father, encourage those throughout our church family who are struggling in ongoing ways with their physical maladies. And I pray that you'll heal them. But I pray most of all that In their weaknesses, the power of Christ will be seen. And that great glory will be reflected back to you because of it. All we can say this morning, Lord, is just to have your own way. You're the potter and we're the clay. Mold us and make us after your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.